This is not a platform about procrastination. But everybody's still here. You didn't think it was. It does, however, so owe some of its being to that much maligned practice, to the universal problem of wasting time. That's what I was doing one day last week as I scrolled through the Washington Post online. I was, of course, on my way for a Carolyn Hacks fix when the On Belief series caught my eye. This online section features religious figures, clergy, laypeople, seminary professors, talking about the issues of the day. And as it happened, this past week, the series focused on the issue of marriage equality, just as though the Washington Post were reading our newsletter, checking out what platform titles were coming up. Thoughtful, I think. This particular on belief section was asking the question whether marriage was a sacred right or a civil right, building on a paper presented by Welton Gaddy on the subject. A number of writers thought they had an answer, as you can imagine, to that question, and you'll hear some of their words today. So you see the benefits, then, of procrastination, the unexpected advantage of a weakness for Carolyn Hacks. But this is not, as I said, a platform about procrastination. Because the truth is, I don't see a lot of time for to procrastinate on the issue we're talking about today. Not a lot of time to procrastinate in DC, where the city council has passed a law recognizing marriages from other jurisdictions and been met by opposition, a request for a voter referendum, and predictions of civil war. Not time to procrastinate in America, where we have seen gains for same-sex couples in some states, while others threaten existing marriages and pass laws attempting to define marriage. Certainly not time to procrastinate for the thousands of couples who want to make their commitment to each other public, permanent, and legal. Marriage equality is a hot topic these days, as evidenced by the Washington Post's online feature, but it's not a new one for progressive religious movements in America. The Unitarian Universalist and Ethical Culture Movements both took public stands supporting marriage equality the same year in 1996, and clergy in both movements have been officiating at same-sex ceremonies much longer than that. In fact, many clergy engage in thoughtful debate about how to respond to the fact that same-sex couples don't yet have the right to marry across America. Some clergy choose not to participate in state marriages at all, so they'll preside at a ceremony but won't sign the papers until they can sign the papers for everyone. Others donate a portion of every wedding fee they receive to an organization fighting for marriage equality. The very first wedding ceremony that I performed was for a same-sex couple in Maryland. I've kept all their information with better detail than most of my records, and I'm looking forward to giving them a call and offering to do it again when I can sign more than a certificate in my office. I asked a few clergy from both the ethical culture and Unitarian Universalist traditions to share with me their thoughts on marriage equality what religious values played a role. 
Michael Franch, a leader in the Baltimore area, put it quite succinctly when he said that officiating at same-sex marriages just made sense to him and that coming up with reasons was like coming up with reasons for why we breathe air. Ann Clayson, the leader, one of the leaders at the New York Ethical Society, echoed his thoughts and added a list of religious values to support her stance. She wrote, unselfish, life-affirming love, commitment to an ethical union that deepens and heightens the couple's best selves, connection to the larger community in the desire to be recognized as a social unit. I loved Anne's response because it really lays out some of the core ethical culture principles that I think relate to our fight, our work for marriage equality, the reason that I think it calls to so many of us. First among those is our deep belief in the inherent worth of every person and the life-affirming love, as Anne puts it, that comes out of that belief. Along with that love and that sense of worth comes a hope for fairness, I think, an insistence that each person is afforded the same rights, given the same chance for happiness. This is perhaps the most obvious link for some of us. But Anne also talks about the importance of connection to community and the creation of a deep bond, a deep commitment. And I want to draw out those two pieces a little bit too because I think they speak to ethical culture's message as well. The importance of community is something we talk about a good deal here at WES. And indeed, it's articulated by almost every newcomer who walks in the door as at least one of the things that they're searching for. And so it makes sense that the desire to be connected to and recognized by one's community is an integral part of the marriage equality conversation. Same-sex couples have been creating their own ceremonies, of course, their own ways of being recognized, at least within their communities. But there's no question that marriage feels somehow different. My husband and I lived together for two years before we got married, and we used to joke that after the wedding we expected to be exactly the same, just with better dishes. We were wrong, although we did get better dishes. <laughs> marriage changed how we felt about each other, how we felt after little spats, and how we imagined the future together. I'm certainly not suggesting that people who have committed relationships to each other without marriage aren't invested in each other. But for me, anyway, the act of getting married made us different. Certainly, it changed how others saw our relationship, from my husband's relatives to, very practically and importantly, my husband's health insurance. But it also changed how we saw it. Marriage gave us, I suppose, a sense of permanence. And that's that final piece of Anne's remark, which I don't think she expected me to dis dissect in quite such detail since she delivered it on Facebook via a posting on my wall. But it's the final piece that particularly resonates with ethical culture values. The importance of the permanence, the commitment that marriage brings. That focus on commitment gives us a chance to think about ethical culture's founder, Felix Adler, and wonder what he would have said about all of this. I am afraid that most of the time we ignore Adler's thoughts on marriage. He was, after all, a man of his time. And his time, although he lived into the first quarter of the 20th century, was really ultimately Victorian. 
He advocated very strongly against divorce and refused himself to marry divorced people. He thought separation was acceptable in the worst circumstances, but never remarriage. And although he certainly didn't suggest that a woman ought to only stay home, his rather active wife might have had something to say about that, he did believe that women had a special and particular role and responsibility in raising children. It is safe to say, I think, that Adler couldn't have quite imagined the fight for marriage equality. But I also think that could we somehow transport Adler to our time, he would at the very least have understood what the fight is about. Adler had a respect for marriage as an institution, for the importance of a life built together, a life chosen together. In 1889, he spoke about marriage to a packed house in Chickering Hall in New York City. The ethical theory of marriage, he said, is characterized by the idea of duty between husband and wife. This idea should be written in large characters on the altar of every home. The inception of every marriage should be love. Love makes duty easy and duty compensates love by deepening and enriching it. When the whole nature of the one responds to the whole nature of the other, there is love. In Adler's understanding duty, that word was not an onus, not the kind of heavy sigh-inducing duty we talk about today, our duty to clean the dishes or our duty to pick up around the house. It was for him the obligation that we have to one another, the care that we hold for each other, the commitment that comes, in this case, with a covenanted relationship. Love's, love makes duty easy, he said, and duty compensates love by deepening and enriching it. Now, three years of marriage hardly make me an expert, but I think Adler had something there. Love deepened by duty, love deepened by commitment. And so I like to imagine, if Adler were here today, that he might stand by my side as I work for marriage equality, as the ethical culture movement works for marriage equality. He would certainly understand, I think, why marriage matters. I told you that I would speak a little bit today about that special section in the Washington Post, that on-belief feature created, of course, in response to our newsletter posting devoted to the question of marriage as sacred right or civil right. That's two different rights. I can't quite say them differently, but you know what I mean. The writers were responding, as I mentioned, to a paper by Welton Gaddy, the president of the Interfaith Alliance a progressive and broad coalition of faith groups across America. Gaddy's paper on same-gender marriage and religious freedom is subtitled, A Call to Quiet Conversations and Public Debates. And it is an attempt to ask the religious community to talk about the marriage equality issue with civility and thoughtfulness. There are people of goodwill and faith on both sides of this issue and everywhere in between. Some of you may be in the in-between, and certainly our religious tradition holds at its heart a respect for difference of feeling, a commitment to open and honest dialogue, to learning from each other even while we proclaim our own truth. 
It is in this spirit that Dr. Gaddy attempts to present a new possibility, or at least a new aspect to the conversation, by calling out the difference between the rites of marriage that may be performed in a religious setting and the civil marriage that the state affects. He writes, if government officials and religious leaders distinguished the differences between legal marriage and religious marriage, they could greatly reduce the amount of conflict in public discussions on same-gender marriage. Many people seem either to ignore or to be unaware of the fact that despite the soaring language and lofty images, in the United States, marriage is a civil institution. Decisions about who is married and who is not married are the prerogative of the government, not a house of worship, a spiritual leader, or a religious tradition. The Interfaith Alliance is known for working on separation of church and state issues, and this position, of course, is no exception. It's also certainly not entirely new. The civil marriage is a civil right. Bumper stickers have been around for some time. And I've had more than one conversation with fellow clergy about the idea that we get out of the whole officiating business altogether and just send people off to the state for the legal stuff, then invite them back to the church or the meeting hall or the synagogue for the ritualized portion of their wedding. And indeed, many of the responders in the Washington Post feature felt the same way, noting the difference between what the state must do in protecting the rights of all citizens and what religions may do in choosing to participate or not in ceremonies for same-sex couples, or for that matter, interfaith couples, or divorced couples, or whatever other limitations some clergy place on the people they will marry. This is an appealing position, and one that, as the theologian Susan Brooks Thistlethwaite writes, may build bridges with people who don't support marriage equality. Asim Shukla, co-founder of the Hindu American Foundation, noted the broad diversity of thought on the marriage equality issue across the Dharmic traditions, but found that he could support Gaddy's proposal. Churches, synagogues, temples, and mosques, he wrote, and all other places of worship enjoy an inalienable right to define marriage in conformity with their traditions as they interpret them. Government has no role in entering the sanctum sanctorum of religious life in our society. I can see the logic here, and certainly when I lobby for marriage equality, as I did earlier this year with the Human Rights Campaign, I talk about the fact that no clergy or religious group would be, should be, or frankly could be, required to bless a same-sex marriage if they chose not to. So there's a sense in which I support that approach and coming, as we do, from a tradition that has long upheld the separation of church and state, I see the resonance with our own values. But as much as I value that separation, I am also a religious person. My husband and I did not choose to simply go to the D.C. courthouse when we got married. We chose a religious ceremony. Marriage, for me, is in every way a religious act, in that original meaning of the word, ligara, the ties that bind. And so while I understand and support the separation of the civil right from the sacred right, I also want to, say, to be sure to say that I believe both should be open to all. Susan Brooks Thistlethwaite thought much the same thing, in fact, and wrote it so beautifully, albeit in the different language of her tradition. She supported Welton Gaddy's argument 
But at the same time, she wrote, I have a nagging reservation about this tactic. Why should it be the marriages of gay Americans where we take God out of the contract? I think a related and I hope complementary struggle is for the equality of soul of every human being. I think she's right. That is, that even as I, as a progressive person, stand for civil marriage and marriage equality, so too I, as a progressive religionist, must stand for sacred marriage and marriage equality. For me, the two are indivisible. One, a reflection of my belief in the rights of every person protected and provided for by our Constitution. The other, a reflection of my belief in the preciousness of every person, informed and upheld by my faith in the human spirit, by the liberal religious tradition I call my own. And here is the good news, the really wonderful news. Other people of faith agree with me. <laughs> I just spoke of Thistlethwaite, a United Church of Christ minister. Episcopal priest John Shelby Spong added his voice, again in the language of his tradition. The state should not tell religious institutions who they should welcome, but not to welcome all of God's people violates everything I know about God, and I would have no desire to be part of a discriminating religious body. My church, he wrote, and many others stand ready to marry and to welcome same-sex couples. The state should move quickly to clarify the fact that under our Constitution, marriage must be a privilege open to all. Well, I would venture an amen, or at least a hear, here. <laughs> In fact, there are a lot of amens out there, and not always from the places that you would expect. Mary and I have both been delighted to sign on, along with other ethical culture leaders and Unitarian Universalist clergy, to become part of a coalition of DC clergy united for marriage equality in the district. The opening press conference for this new coalition was held a few months ago at Covenant Baptist Church in Ward 8. Their vision statement reads, the vision statement of the, of the church reads, affirming our African heritage, our vision is to build an inclusive body of biblical believers who continue to grow in Christ as we love, serve, and fellowship with the community and with each other. The church was chosen as the site for this press conference partly because of its location in the heart of Ward 8, partly because it is led by a heterosexual clergy couple, partly because it is a black Baptist church, partly because a few years ago the membership voted to make the blessing of same-sex unions an explicit part of its ministry, and so therefore entirely because its hosting of the press conference was likely to open a few eyes and challenge some expectations. Standing behind the pulpit that day were the clergy couple who lead the church, joined by Methodist, Baptist, Episcopalian, Catholic, and of course, ethical culture and Unitarian Universalist clergy who were white, black, Latino, straight, gay, young, and old. It was a moving experience that morning and the power of the moment was not lost on those who gathered. One of the clergy remarked that day that he had rarely seen a gathering of clergy with such diversity in religious, ethnic, and racial backgrounds, and that he couldn't believe it was marriage equality that had brought us together. 
And yet there we were, standing together, each coming from our own traditions, negotiating a little bit around the language, practicing being together. Many of these pastors knew each other from other partnerships around the city, from their work together on affordable housing or homelessness issues. One of my tasks had been to call the rabbis, <laughs> ethical culture being a kind of kissing cousin, I guess, to synagogues, <laughs> to invite them to join this coalition, to stand alongside us. The list of names continues to grow, and the diversity continues to increase. But despite that diversity, despite the differences in the language we might prefer or the ornaments we might wear, we've all put our names on that list for the same reason. We all share that feeling that marriage is a civil right and a sacred right, that it requires the protection of the government for all of its citizens, and that we, as religious people, have something to say about it, too that our understanding of the sacred, of the holy, <laughs> might be different, but that we all think, whatever it is, it's there for everyone, that the spark of human life, the beautiful spirit of humanity, is in each person. My work, our work, for marriage equality is not just about equal rights. It's about a shared belief in the inherent worth the undeniable worth of every person. That's a hallmark of the ethical culture tradition. It's a hallmark of the Unitarian Universalist tradition. And I am glad to say a hallmark of all the other traditions whose clergy signed on to that coalition. Ethical culture is unique. It is different from other faiths in plenty of ways. This is one way that I am glad to be the same. Sometimes you ask me after a platform to talk more about what it really means in your life, about what you should do about all of this. So today I want to be clear. I am inviting you to stand with me, to be ready when I call you for a rally or a demonstration, to be prepared to call your council member or your congressperson. I am inviting you to talk about this, to share your thoughts with your coworkers and your relatives, your neighbors and your friends. And I am inviting you to join me in thinking about why this issue may resonate for you. We stand up for causes that are important to us for all kinds of reasons. I stand for this one for the families who are raising children without dual parent adoption, who are unable to get health insurance from their spouse, who are waiting for the state to recognize their partnership of 30 years. I stand for my own daughter so that when she grows up, she can marry whomever she loves. I stand for the principle of equality and fairness, for the rights that I think the Constitution promises. And I stand, like so many others, for my faith.